Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We'll pick up where we left off when I ask him about the criminal charges against Derek Chauvin and what the prosecution will need to prove to get a conviction. After that, we'll discuss jury selection, concerns about security, and a unique Minnesota evidence law that might make the prosecution's job much more difficult. We now return to the episode already in progress. Well, let's get into the charges. And I, I want to walk carefully through here, Professor. You know, most of our listeners, I would say, probably have some type of legal background. But, you know, increasingly, I hope that we're getting more people interested in the law. And so not everyone's going to have the same legal background. So I want to go through the three charges that uh, Derek Chauvin's been charged with. And then after that, let's go through the elements that the state is going to have to show in order to get a conviction. So let's start with uh, listing them out. And then we'll get into, I guess, the, uh, the burden of proof of the state. Okay, so initially there was three charges brought against Derek Chauvin, and they were murder in the third degree, manslaughter in the second degree, and murder in the second degree. And I say initially because those three charges were brought initially. At one point, Peter Cahill dropped the murder in the third degree charge saying it didn't apply. And what we saw in terms of pre-trial maneuvers that took place just literally days before jury selection started. There were cases going back up to the Minnesota Court of Appeals and the Minnesota Supreme Court with eventually an order requiring the, the district court judge to consider whether or not to reinstate murder in the third degree, and he did. So that's where we are at this point. Three different charges, which obviously have different elements for each of them, and of course also have, um, if there's a conviction, different punishments in terms of, of imprisonment. You know, I want to ask you a question because I've been, you know, doing some research on this, you know, reading, listening to some podcasts and, and, and legal experts out there. And the ones that seem to make the most sense to me suggest that, you know, contrary to what's being said in the media, you know, the state has an uphill battle here because especially in terms of the second degree murder charge and the third degree murder charge, there's going to be aspects of intent here. And so they have an uphill battle to try to figure that out. So let's walk through those carefully here. So let's start with second degree murder. That's the highest list of charges here. So what does the state need to show in order to get a conviction there? Well, just remember for everybody, this is going to be like teaching law school 101 again or something Excellent. like that. <laughs> you have to prove two different things in order to find somebody guilty of a crime. Um, you have to prove what's called actus reus, which means that somebody did something, and then two, mens re, the level of intent. So the actus reus for all three of them is going to have to be to show that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd. So for all three of them, that's what we're going to have to show. Now, murder in the second degree is really quite fascinating here because murder in the second degree in Minnesota is what's called the felony murder doctrine. And what happens here is that in order to convict somebody of second degree murder, you have to show that once somebody has proven to have killed somebody, that is, that somebody has caused the death of somebody, I should say, you don't have to prove the state of mind. What you merely have to show is that in the process of them committing another felony against somebody, it led to the death of that person in the process. Prosecutors love the felony murder doctrine because what it allows them to do is sort of to up the criminal ante without having to establish normally the type of mens re that you would have to do if it was just an outright murder. So what the state's going to have to show here is that in the process of Derek Chauvin committing another felony against George Floyd, it led to the death of George Floyd. What are the other felonies? 
perhaps either manslaughter in the second degree or murder in the third degree. This is kind of confusing to think about here because most of us want to say, got to show intent. But no, under the, the felony murder doctrine, proving that they committed another felony then allows you to be able to now also up the ante to second degree murder. Okay. Now, so point of clarification, that only applies to second degree murder or does that carry through to third degree murder? That only carries to second degree murder. All right, let's go to third degree murder. What are they going to have to prove there? Again, still have to prove that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd, but then you're going to have to show that in the process of causing his death, that what he did, that is Derek Chauvin, perpetuated an act eminently dangerous to others that demonstrated what? A depraved mind. And this is really interesting because this whole depraved mind is really a carryover from what language that many states have that almost goes back to what? Um, I was going to say common law England um, in terms of talking about a depraved mind. And what makes showing a depraved mind so fascinating and so complex in this case is literally on March 31st, the Minnesota Supreme Court issued an opinion clarifying what it is in terms of what you have to show for murder in the third degree, which may very well complicate this case a little bit. And what they said is that to show a depraved mind, what you have to show is that a person could infer from the act that the person was committing that the person acted with a depraved mind, which means you have to be able to say, well, could I infer and the reason why this is important, there were some people who were thinking that merely doing a depraved act was proof of a depraved mind. No, the court said the act gives, or perhaps along with circumstantial evidence, will suggest a possible inference of a depraved mind. But we're going to have to show a depraved mind that the person basically acted in such a way that they caused the death of somebody without particularly trying to cause the death of a particular person. Because if obviously, if they were trying to cause the death of a specific person, then we could up this to what? Second degree murder or perhaps first degree murder. So all you have to do for third degree murder is act in such a way that your behavior caused the death of somebody, suggesting that you have a depraved mind because you were indifferent to their life. Okay. And a follow-up on that, you mentioned this case precedent, and I didn't quite catch the date, but it was after George Floyd had been killed, but before this case, correct? Well, yes. It's a famous case that just came down in Minnesota with a decision again on March 31st. Okay. It's a horrible case that happened a few years ago where, where somebody was drunk on a snowmobile and basically went through what we called an ice house, you know, where people go fishing in the winter and killed a small boy. It's a, just a very, very terrible case. And he was convicted of third degree murder. And we just never have had good clarity regarding what murder in the third degree is. And so we, we got clarity we think on March 31st. Now, how this is going to apply to the, the Derek Chauvin case, we don't quite know at this point. Yeah, and that's my question, because if it's a relatively new finding, is it retroactive back to when these events occurred or how does that work? We don't know yet because the court didn't say that. <laughs> um, the court okay. didn't clarify that force in the decision. It said that in that case involving the snowmobile, this is what we think third degree murder means now okay. and tried to clarify. So I spent last night, I spent Wednesday night, you know, the 31st of March with my students for like 45 minutes trying to figure out what the court actually said. And some student asked me the same question, said, well, how does this apply to this case? And I said, I don't know. I think 
I think this is going to be retroactive, but the court never addressed that because what? That wasn't the issue before. But needless to say, we're going to have to show something in terms of a depraved mind for murder in the third degree. Yep, definitely clear as mud. <laughs> so That's right. Exa- exactly. Yeah. There's so many things in this case that are as clear as mud that, again, if there's a conviction, it's ripe for review. Okay, let, let's close out this part with a second degree manslaughter. Now, this is the one I think that's most likely to occur if the state's going to get a conviction, but walk us through the elements of uh, second degree manslaughter. Sure. Again, you have to show that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd, but then you have to show that that the person's culpable negligence created an unreasonable risk. And so for people who've gone to law school, if we just sort of think of culpable negligence, that's a pretty good standard there. I mean, it, it's basically the difference between murder and manslaughter is generally the difference between what? Malice versus negligence. And so second degree manslaughter, it's going to be a negligence standard. All right, Professor, I want to start transitioning into the jury selection process here. Now, I was paying attention while this was going on. I was kind of watching some of it, kind of had it on, uh, just listening to the audio in the background. I know that secrecy and security has been a big part of this. Uh, I know that uh, Minneapolis is very worried about, uh, you know, violent acts that could come out. They were worried about members of the jury being harassed. So let's talk about this jury selection process. and, And from what you've seen, what are the big highlights here? First off, what happened is several months ago, the Hennepin County Court sent out a questionnaire, we think to about 340 or 350 individuals in terms of an initial questionnaire to ask people a variety of things about the trial and about about their knowledge. There's no question that everybody knew about the incident, that finding somebody who hadn't either seen the video or hadn't heard about it was going to be a big issue here. And so The questionnaire was basically directed at asking, have you heard anything about this trial? Have you seen the video? But most importantly, what they were trying to find out is had they already made up their mind. So the jury pool, in case you're wondering, was sent to people in Hennepin County. It was drawn from driver's license, voter registration, government ID. An initial panel of about 350 people was sort of drawn. And then they started again on March 9th doing the voir dire that is starting to ask a series of questions. And mostly what both sides were trying to do at this point is to find a jury pool of individuals. They wanted to have 12 plus three alternates who hadn't already made up their mind. Again, no one was thinking they were going to find people who had said, I've never heard of this, never had no idea who George Floyd is, what had happened, et cetera, et cetera. And over the period of about two and a half weeks, they did eventually get to 15 jurors. And this is a really interesting question that you're asking here, because the jury pool, the population of Hennepin County is about 20% people of color. And Minneapolis is a much higher percentage of people of color. And the question was going to be, what's going to be the racial balance in terms of the jury? At the end of the day, it's a fairly racially diverse, gender diverse in terms jury. And I I say this because it appears to have met the constitutional obligations in terms of nobody appears to have been excluded on the basis of race. No one appears to be excluded on the basis of gender. But just because something has met, let us say, the constitutional standard doesn't necessarily mean that it has passed the test of the court of public opinion. And I say that because given the racial tensions, given the, well, we'll say the racial tensions and the knowledge of what's going on in Hennepin County, ultimately the verdict here is going to be judged by the racial composition also of the jury. And for listeners who don't realize that, of course, after George Floyd's um, death, there were 
both the protected First Amendment demonstrations that occurred, as well as significant rioting. And if you were to go downtown in Hennepin County right now around the courthouse, we've got razor wire, barbed wire, we've got the concrete, you know, block set up, um, we have um, extra police, and the governor has put the National Guard on alert just in case something happens. And so the security for this is absolutely enormous. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like a powder cake. You could just feel the tension. I mean, we, even with, the, I mean, obviously the news coverage, they're, they're going to sensationalize a lot of this, but just in uh, the things that I would read, you can just feel that uh, people are kind of on pins and needles with this. And they're, they're really worried about safety, the courtrooms and, and everything. And so getting back to the the racial making, I thought that was kind of interesting. I did look this up. And so I think uh, the count was, was they have six men, nine women, and then you know just just in terms of the racial uh, blend here, you know nine are white, uh, four are black, and two are multiracial. And so that was one of the things that I'd read that they they felt pretty satisfied that they've got a decent amount of diversity to be part of this jury. So let me close it out real quick. Any odd questions, you know, during the uh, voir dire process, which of course is the jury selection process, but any odd questions that stuck out to you uh, while they were making their selections? Yeah, I think mostly the questions were a lot of ones around the attitudes towards groups like Black Lives Matters, or some people have heard of what, like Blue Lives Matters, you know, in terms of groups that are representing police officers. And they were trying to find out if somebody had already made up their mind in terms of being pro-police, anti-police, pro, um, let's say, um, black, anti-black, et cetera, et cetera, and as an effort to try to sort of smoke out bias. However, for many individuals asking some of these questions seemed inappropriate. There were actually some people who questioned a fact that the defense excluded at one point some individual who was a person of color who had had some run-ins with police officers and defense used one of its challenges to say, I want this person removed. Many people in the community, black community and the African-American community in the Twin Cities said, ah, this person would have been an actually great person to be on a jury because he understands about racism and police, but he was excluded. And that's important to know here. One of the points I want to underscore is that for many people watching this trial, they view it as a trial about what? Putting police brutality or police use of force on trial or racism on trial. And the judge has explicitly made it clear that this is not about that. This is about what? One individual being charged with the death of another individual. And in the opening arguments, the prosecution made that very clear because if this does turn into in the court itself into, let's say, a referendum on policing, a referendum on racism, that becomes the recipe if, in fact, there is a conviction for an overturn on appeal because it'll be what? The jurors didn't make a decision based upon the facts at hand, but upon broader social causes. The other point I want to make quickly here is we did some comparisons at one point about this trial to, let's say, O.J. Simpson or to Rodney King. There's another trial I want to bring people's attention to from the 1950s, Shepard versus Maxwell. And it would involve the famous case of Sam Shepard, who was the inspiration from a 60s television show called The Fugitive, a 1990s movie. And it was all about a famous doctor accused of killing his wife. There was intense pretrial coverage, intense coverage during the trial. He was eventually convicted and eventually the Supreme Court overturned it, arguing that there was so much pretrial publicity and publicity during the trial, he couldn't get a fair trial. And the reason why that's important here is because of the intensity of the coverage here before the trial, because of the fact that everybody knows about it, because several incidents, for example, in the middle of Voidir, the city of Minneapolis reaches a $25 million civil settlement with George Floyd's family. 
there's a lot of concern that perhaps this may be a trial that is tainted by pretrial publicity. And the defense did ask, in fact, at one point for a change of venue that was denied. So again, if there is a conviction, more likely than not, one of the grounds on appeal is going to be the pretrial publicity and atmosphere was so charged that Derek Chauvin couldn't get a fair trial. Yeah, I gotta be honest. I, I'm shocked that they haven't removed it to a different jurisdiction just to try to uh, maintain all of the appearance of fairness in this case. So I, I don't know if that's on the menu of options at some point in the future, but you know, that's one thing I was like, there's no way they're gonna be able to have this case given all that media coverage and and all the things that went on around the country with the protests and the riots. You know, and every, it seemed like almost every big city around the country. So I don't know. That was one of my big surprises. So let's. Uh, I've just got a couple minutes left, Professor, and I do want to kind of. Uh, touch upon some of the evidence that's been presented and uh, some of the witnesses. Can you give us just a brief walkthrough on what we've seen so far? Just quick summaries, uh, you know, minute or less. And then I want to talk about forecasting and that'll be our, our closeout question for this episode. Sure. What's happened this opening week, obviously, is besides the opening statements, what the prosecution is trying to do is to set the context. Minnesota has a unique legal doctrine by Supreme Court decision called spark of life, where the prosecution can bring in, in murder cases, some evidence that talks about who the victim was. Because the argument is that the victim can't speak for himself because he's dead. And this now we're seeing in the first few days, the prosecution trying to paint a picture of who George Floyd is. So that's, that's, Part of what they've done so far this week, it's again, it's very controversial doctrine. Only Minnesota, as far as I know, has it. And they really haven't gotten to what I think is sort of the heart of the case at this point. Let me ask a quick follow-up on that. Now, if the prosecution opens that up, and I understand that George Floyd had a criminal record you know, Correct. in his lifetime here. And so now they open that up. Now, the defense is going to be able to bring in you know, some of those past actions. They're like, uh, hey, you know, you're portraying him this way, but he's also this way. And so is that going to be an option for the defense? Yes. And this is something that the judge has to police at this point because he initially said you can't bring in any of George Floyd's record, which did include priors, did include an arrest by the Minneapolis Police Department a year before. But at the last minute, he said that, yes, we're going to be able to bring in that video from his arrest from the year before. And we're starting to see that getting introduced. And so this is a risk. The prosecution wants to paint a, let's say, a human picture of George Floyd. And it's tried to do it in a sympathetic way to say, yes, he's a flawed person, but he still didn't deserve what he gets. The defense is going to try to bring in Again, very subtly, an argument that talks about how what? He's somebody who is a drug user. He was somebody who was resisting arrest, who has a pattern um, of resisting arrest. So it's, it's, it's dangerous because the spark of life borders on for some people as possibly prejudicial, you know, appealing to the emotions of juries. But at the same time, it also runs the risk of letting the defense bring in some aspects that it might not otherwise be able to do. To use the legal phrase, essentially, the prosecution may be opening the door to allow the defense to bring in things that it might not want to normally bring in. Yeah, that is really fascinating because, you know, from evidence class, I remember there were certain things that you were not allowed to bring in. So it's kind of a new wrinkle. Uh, and I think it's going to make this case a whole lot more difficult, I think, for the prosecution. And you know, that's one of the things I was really concerned with, uh, kind of watching, you know, some of these elements. And when I heard the charges, you start seeing some of this additional evidence come in, you start seeing this body cam footage uh, come out. I'm like, I think this case is going to be a much harder prosecution than is publicly, I think, understood by most people just, you know, 
by way of the news. And I think most people think it's a slam dunk. It is not a slam dunk. So let's get into um, some of the competing factors here in terms of evidence. And so, you know, I think probably the most obvious one is the what the civilian cam versus the officer body cams capture. You know, it, they definitely show different aspects, different angles. And it there's two different stories depending on which of these you've seen. And it's often confusing to see the same thing from a different angle and understand the relevance. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of the conflicting autopsy evidence that, that we can expect to see. And then let's close it out a minute or less. Sure. Okay. So what we're clearly seeing at this point is dueling videos right off the bat. We've got the famous video that everybody's seen, but there are several other videos that are going to be brought, right? Police cams, other civilian cams and so forth. I think on one level, the prosecution wants to say the video speaks for itself and the prosecution showed it several times. However, there are other videos that are going to paint a different picture and the defense is doing that. The other things that we're going to see probably going into the second week of the trial are dueling autopsy reports. Um, The state's initial autopsy said that George Floyd died of heart failure. Family hired their own um, medical examiner who said that it was asphyxiation. The defense is going to come back and say that, listen, we have our experts looking at the autopsy data that pointed out the fact that George Floyd had COVID-19, he had the coronavirus, his lungs were significantly packed with fluid at this point. Um, He tested positive for fentanyl and meth and so forth. They're going to argue that what? He was in the process of dying of a drug overdose. And this is important because defense is going to challenge the most basic proposition and argue that, in fact, Derek Chauvin didn't cause the death of George Floyd. And if they can win on that, if they can cast reasonable doubt about the cause of death, they've done their job. Because remember, verdicts have to be unanimous. And I think in part what the defense is banking on is either casting enough reasonable doubt to get 12 jurors to say no, or alternatively, get at least one juror holdout. And that one juror holdout causes a hung jury, forces a retrial, if in fact the prosecution wants to do a retrial, because we know retrials are much harder to do than initial trials. Well, Professor, thank you so much for helping us out with this today. And can we count on you for a future episode? We'd love to be able to do future episodes because it's going to unfold in a very fascinating way. In some sense, this is almost a, a teaching case on criminal law in the United States. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to have you back. And I think it's going to teach us a lot just in terms of criminal justice, uh, whether criminal justice can be delved out fairly. I think uh, in addition to obviously this trial, this criminal case, I think the country's on trial here too. Do we have a criminal justice system that can deliver the fair, unbiased results? We'll, we'll see. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Notice spelled N-O-T-A. And last but not least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 